one. Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. As always, Paddy, how are you this week? I'm absolutely splendid, young Gary. I know you were out on the piss last night, just so all our followers are aware, Gary. You're an absolute degenerate, drinking the nights away, but at least you get up in the morning, you know? Yeah, I had a, a whopping three beverages over the course of nine hours, although I did actually have like four, no, one Guinness Zero, maybe three of those Heineken Zeros. Not, not too bad, but, you know, probably better to just get a Coke. But, uh, yeah, that, that was that. Don't go out with the boys at night if you can't get up with the men in the morning. Here we are Sunday morning recording the podcast. Let's go, Patty. What are we talking about this week? Well, today we're going to do like a training overview. And we have actually done something like this before, actually relatively recently like within the last two years or whatever but the reason we're going to go through it today is because we actually had a lot of questions about like you know what we would consider kind of more fundamental things around training uh, we're also going to do a nutrition one um, and we kind of want somewhere that we can just send people and go here you go here's just the quick hitter here's the notes on this you don't have to know everything in depth and also it is something that we discuss with clients a lot like say for example we'll be going through a client's program we'll have been working with them for the last let's say six months and then they're kind of finishing up with us you know because we obviously try to get our clients to a position where they feel confident knowing what to do with their training but i would like something to be able to just send to them and go just for future reference just to make sure you have everything clear here's like a training overview here's like the quick hitter notes of the things that you should kind of know if you're going to be designing your own training program going forward. Right. And so rather than having that be like an internal thing that we just give to our clients, like it's obviously beneficial for people who listen to the podcast, people who follow our content, etc. you know? So hopefully I know we usually prattle on a lot, but hopefully today's podcast is going to be like short and sharp. It's just the things that you need to know, it's not all of the nuance. Yeah, we'll, we'll layer on a little bit of nuance, but it's not absolutely everything you need to know about training. This is just the, the kind of cliff notes, the summary. Here you go. Make sure you know this stuff. Make sure you're applying this stuff to your training program design, and you should be in a good position by the end of this. Do you have anything to add to that, Gary? I don't think so. I think just that um, it's been, you know, six months was the, basically the duration of the the women's series where we were talking about women's health and all that sort of stuff. So we, we, t- we really, you know, exhausted that topic. And I think we did pick up like quite a few new listeners to the podcast who, you know, regularly listen um, during that, during that time. So obviously some of you will never have heard our older episodes. You might think, is this just a women's health podcast or what is this? Um, so yeah, th- for that reason, we, we want to, you know, delve back into these topics. So um First and foremost, as we as we dig, dig into this this topic of training and how to train, I think it's always helpful to have some sort of, I guess, baseline philosophy or some principles that you're working off from which you can then, you know, start to make decisions. And when it comes to exercise um, and training, one of the kind of core principles that everything starts with is that the body adapts to stresses that are applied to it. And it does so in a dose-dependent manner. And that might seem very obvious, but you can see that, you know, that's, it's actually not a very simple statement because clearly there's an amount of stress that you can apply to your body that, you know, you're not going to adapt to. And well, there's two directions there or two, two sides to that one, the stress, the stress can just be too low. You know, it's a very, if I do 
five push-ups today. Am I going to get stronger? No, I'm not because I've already got those adaptations. Okay. Um, if I do 5,000 push-ups today, how am I going to feel tomorrow? You know, my shoulders are going to be really sore. I'm probably going to have muscle soreness lasting for about a week. I might be putting myself at risk of injury. It's just simply too far beyond um, my potential for adaptation. So there's a zone somewhere there where you're doing something that is challenging, but not totally overwhelming the system that's going to lead to adaptation. So we apply stress to the body and then we adapt to that stress, assuming that we have adequate resources. So for example, you might need to have adequate nutrition in place. You might need to be sleeping appropriately. You might need to you know, not have too much other activity that's taking away from the recovery capacity. So that's something that I think people do understand, but you need to just think about what that actually means for your own training, because, you know, you, you do need to um, start to apply more stress to the body as you get fitter and as you get stronger. But if you take that too far, then you put yourself at risk of injury, which then compromises your potential for long-term adaptation. So you do need to understand what level of, you know, training stress you've been previously exposed to, what's kind of roughly the amount that you need to maintain. It's not very easy to assess that, but you know, you'll have an idea of the type of training program that you follow. And it's just like, yeah, I'm just tipping away. I'm just kind of maintaining what I'm doing versus the type of training program that, that leads you to being, you know, a bit more fatigued, progressing with your training. It's challenging. You need to be, you know, heading the game when you're going into the gym. And then there's a high end to that where you push that any further, it's just not going to lead to adaptation anymore because it's just too far beyond your capacity. So that's just a, a fundamental principle apply stress to the body, adapt to it, assuming that the dose is appropriate. It's not too high or too low. That's ultimately what drives positive training outcomes. Yeah. So the key thing there we need to understand is there is a Goldilocks zone with the stress that we've applied, you know, too little, you're not going to get the adaptations you want too much. You're not going to be able to recover from this training and thus you're not going to get the adaptations that you want. So that's a key concept here. There's a Goldilocks zone and that applies to so much within the training program in terms of how much you overload in terms of like what weights you're using how much volume you do in terms of the amount of sets that you're doing all the different things that we'll get into in in a moment but understand there's a goldilocks zone so we have to respect that and then also understand that you can't just do the same thing over and over and expect results you know you need to be progressing your training in some way shape or form and oftentimes you'll hear people in the fitness industry talk about progressive overload that's kind of the concept we would use to describe that that process you want to progressively overload your training and that can look different for you know different goals for different individuals that could be a case of adding more weight to the bar that's the classic one that everyone kind of thinks of i'm just going to add more weight to the bar and as a result of that or add more weight to the machine that i'm using or whatever and i'm going to get stronger and i'm going to get bigger as a result of that and that's you know that's a fairly good rule of thumb you know it's like okay add more weight to the bar you're going to get stronger you're going to adapt but that's not the only way we can think of progressive overload it is or rather it does seem to be the most effective way in terms of we're trying to apply tension to the muscles so they adapt. And obviously, if you lift a heavier weight, more tension goes to the muscles. However, there are some caveats to that because you could technically lift more weight, but do it in a way that's completely different than how you were lifting previously. And we've all seen this. People will do like a really beautiful squat, you know, for example, and um, 
you know, it's just really like the, the archetypical perfect squat. And then they add some more weight to the bar and all of a sudden it's kind of looking like a good morning. And, you know, maybe they cut the depth a little bit and it's like, oh yeah, you lifted more weight, but it's actually not the same exercise anymore. You're not doing the same movement anymore. Right. So we have to take that into account that we have to standardize a lot of this stuff if we are to actually progressively overload in a meaningful way. So it's not just, oh, I did more work, I lifted more weight, or I did more sets. There has to be some sort of standardization within that, right? Which kind of brings us to the next point, which is good technique. So Gary, what, what's good technique? So good technique is, well, one, it's, it's, it's dependent on your goal. Because if you're training solely, let's say, for strength or performance, then good technique is that which allows you to lift the most weight, ultimately. Um, obviously, there's a consideration there in terms of using a technique that maybe puts you at higher risk of injury would not be a great long-term strategy because clearly you're going to be injured and then your strength is going to be compromised. Um, but for a power lifter um, or a weight lifter, your technical considerations are, you know, you're, you're basically trying to find the most efficient way to move that weight from A to B. You're not trying to maximize tension on particular muscles or you know, get the greatest hypertrophy stimulus on a muscle or anything like that. So that's actually very different to how most people in the gym maybe do or should approach their training. Because ultimately, what a lot of people in the gym and a lot of people listening to the, this podcast are training for are, you know, yes, they're trying to get stronger, but they're trying to apply um, stress to particular muscles. They're not trying to like maximize performance and lift the maximum amount of weight all the time. And as a result, what you're trying to do with your technique is find a way to perform a repetition that applies the most amount of stress to the target muscle or muscles. And ideally what you want uh, to achieve with that is that you're not, you know, placing unnecessary stress on, um, you know, joint structures that might be vulnerable, particularly if you've had previous injuries, you know, the classic example is people who want to train their chest without aggravating their shoulders. You know, they might train in such a way now, that, you know, whether it's their technique or their overall volume or the exercise selection, they're in a position where, you know, their, their shoulders are just giving out before their chest actually does. So very often what we end up doing is modifying someone's technique to uh, allow them to stimulate the chest um, more. So the basics of understanding technique, I guess, start with your understanding of anatomy. So any exercise that you do, you don't have to have a very high level of technical knowledge, but it is worth having an understanding of the roughly the muscles that you're trying to target and what those muscles do would be a bonus because then that gives you an idea as to what your technique might, you know, should look like. So for example, with, if you stick with a bench press, you know, the pec performs horizontal adduction, which means it brings your arms across the body. So that's fundamentally what you're trying to do um, with a bench press. You're trying to challenge that movement of bringing the arm across the body. And you can see there that that same movement can be challenged with dumbbells, machines, cables. There's many different ways that you can target that muscle. So I think understanding that can help you to, one, you know, choose good exercises, but two, also figure out what your technique should look like. So, you know, you're not gonna do a, a super close grip bench press where your arm isn't coming across the body if you're trying to maximize the development of the chest. Um, that's just one example. So what I would encourage you to do there is have a look over your exercise program as it stands and just roughly have a knowledge of maybe one to three muscles that that exercise is working. And that'll give you an idea then 
of maybe what your technique should look like. You should understand, if you're a trainer at least, um, the biomechanical principles on the pinning technique as well. So, for example, things like uh, force direction. So, where is your, where is, for example, if you're lifting an upper body exercise, where's your arm moving and where's the resistance pushing that arm? So if they're, you know, directly against each other and the muscle is pulling in the right direction, then you're going to get an appropriate stress um, or stimulus on that muscle to adapt. Whereas sometimes people choose exercises that maybe aren't um, in line with those principles. And that's generally, you know, an inefficient way of, of trying to target that muscle. So good technique, you can get into the theoretical things like the anatomy and the biomechanics, but fundamentally, I think what you should be looking for is that you're feeling um, a stimulus on the target muscle. So you should feel that muscle maybe getting pumped. You feel a contraction, you feel a stretch. It feels fatigued afterwards. It might be a bit sore. And you're achieving that in the context of not having joint pain that is overriding um, that stimulus. And also that it's that muscle primarily and not necessarily other muscles. There's nothing wrong with other muscles being involved in an exercise, but if they're the ones that are always the limiting factor as opposed to the muscle you're trying to develop the most, I would consider modifying my, te my technique. For example, if you're doing a squat and every time you squat, it's your adductors and your glutes that are constantly sore, they're constantly the limiting factor and your quads are never getting sore or pumped or fatigued and you're trying to develop your quads, then maybe that's not, if one, it's maybe not the best exercise, but two, maybe you're performing it with a technique that could be modified to target the quads more. Um, so there, I think that's a, a very simple way of understanding what good technique actually means. And then the final component of technique really is the range of motion that you use. And I think it's a good heuristic to, you know, generally try to work through the largest range of motion you can, but doing so in the context that you're maintaining stress on the target muscle it's not just being shifted to other muscles or maybe to joints um and that it's repeatable that's also really important so you, you want to use a larger range of motion but it doesn't mean you need to you know always maximize the distance that you're moving the bar you know there are people or, or machine or cable there are people who you know will say you know you don't need to touch your chest on a bench press if me and patty do a bench press i might touch my chest sooner in the range of motion than he does so don't be too dogmatic about the concept of a full range of motion because what full range of motion means for different people, you know, varies quite a bit. And one of the ways we kind of might look at this with a client is by looking at what's referred to as active range of motion. And this would be the range of motion that someone can attain in the absence of any external weight. So for example, if you do a bench press and you're, you've got a hundred kilos in your hands, that weight is going to force you into ranges of motion that you wouldn't get to if you didn't have that weight in your hands. So that's one of the ways we look at that is what range of motion can someone move through comfortably with just their body, just their muscles, no external weight. And then that gives us an idea of maybe what some of the limiting factors might be. And if we see that someone has a clear limitation in range of motion without any weight added, then it's not very wise for us to start adding loads of weight to that position, particularly if they have a history of injury it's uncomfortable in the sense that they're getting joint pain rather than, you know, muscle pain. Um, so heuristic, I would say, is use the largest range of motion that allows you to keep the stress on the target muscle without shifting it to other joint structures or other muscles that you're not trying to target. Yeah, exactly. And I think a really easy way to just put this into practice is, look, if you're already training, just go to your program 
And every single exercise that you're doing, well, maybe not everything, you don't have to do it for absolutely everything, but just look at that and go, do I know what this is supposed to be targeting? You know, like you'll go, well, here's a, I don't know, a, a lat pull down. It'll just be called a lat pull down. Like what's a lat? Like, do you, do you know what that is? Do you know where you should be feeling this? Do you know what, you know, this, like it should look like in terms of, you know, the quote unquote perfect technique. Like you should have an idea of that in your mind from an, an anatomy perspective, if you're going into this exercise and you've no idea where you should be feeling it, you've no idea what this is supposed to target. You've no idea what this is, you know, how the muscles are supposed to function in terms of you know, performing this exercise. You're obviously not going to get the most from this, the, the exercise itself, because you're in a position where you, you just don't know, you know? So you could by accident perform it correctly, but the odds are that you're going to perform it some way incorrectly because you don't know where you should be feeling it, or you're going to use other muscles, or you're going to use some sort of like momentum or whatever to do the exercise rather than actually feeling the target muscles work, which that can be fine. Again, it depends on your exact goals with training, which, you know, we probably should just touch on very briefly. And it kind of makes sense with the next point as well. Like you should be very clear on your goals with, training you know and i'm not saying you have to spend you know absolutely years going oh let's refine my goals refine them you should just be able to go into the gym and go what are my goals with this training session why am i doing these exercises do they align with my goals because a lot of people they end up just training in a way that's basically just choreography and this applies to advanced trainers like trainees i should say as well as like newbie trainees people just go in and they basically just do choreography. People say, Oh, well I do this exercise because insert whatever bodybuilder did this exercise. And as a result, it's a, a good exercise and it doesn't fit with their goals. It doesn't fit with what they need to do. It doesn't fit with, you know, the overall goals that they have in terms of the end goal that they want to produce. And it also doesn't fit with the goals that they have in terms of their body mechanics, their anatomy, their structures, etc. you know? So you want to just dig a little bit deeper. It doesn't have to be this, you know, you don't have to produce a dissertation on anatomy or whatever, but you should be able to go, Oh, I want to build my chest or my shoulders or whatever. And I'm doing these exercises for that muscle group, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting any kind of stimulus. My shoulder development or whatever isn't where I want it. Or perhaps I'm in pain as a result of doing this exercise if you go into that with somewhat of an understanding of anatomy, again, it doesn't have to be in depth. You just need to know what different muscles do. You'll be in a much better position to be able to choose better exercises and get more from your training, you know? And, and this is one of those things as well, going on to that, like active range of motion versus like, you know, full range of motion versus like passive ranges of motion, et cetera. Like you don't need to really dig deep with this because you basically can, uh, like it's intuitive. Like if you're doing an exercise and you're going, Oh, every time I touch my chest in the bench press, for example, it hurts my shoulders, you know, like get someone to look at your technique, you know, a coach, you can do it online. Most people are able to, you know, or willing to, I should say like on Instagram or whatever, like you tagged Gary or something, put it on your stories or whatever. Like he's going to look at that and go, Oh, actually maybe, you know, you could do it like this or whatever, you know? Um, so you can get so much free information Obviously, if you're tagging me, Gary, triage or whatever, every single day with exercises, we're just going to be like, here, bro, like just get coaching. <laughs> but at the end of it, like if you're just like, there's this one exercise that I just I'm always struggling with, like people are willing to help you in the fitness industry, not just us, most other people as well, you know. Um, 
So you can get an idea of that. But for some people, you're just going to have to do a modified technique of the quote unquote ideal exercise. Let's say the ideal exercise is this bench press touching your chest. You might just have to do something different to that based on what you're trying to achieve, based on your anatomy, based on how your body moves. And you shouldn't be upset about that. Cause I know a lot of people are like, Oh my God, it should, yeah, I need to touch my chest. And people literally make entire careers around saying like, Oh, full range of motion is the best range of motion. Like you need to do full, full ROM and all that kind of stuff. Even though you can literally look at their training and they don't do full range of motion on a lot of exercise. Like a very common one is people will say, Oh, squats need to be full ROM. And they say that because they're really just built for squatting. Yet you see them do something like dips, which is basically like a squat for the upper body. You know, it's literally almost the exact same movement pattern. And they're not, they're not going on about like, oh, well, you know, uh, your uh, biceps need to completely cover your forearm. They, they basically go to 90 degrees and they're like, yeah, that's done because that adequately targets the muscles that I'm trying to target, you know? So it's like, what, like where is the disconnect here, <laughs> you know? Um, so forget about all that stuff in terms of, oh, this exercise needs to be full range of motion. Like that's an arbitrary standard. It's not set up for your body. Of course, we're not advocating for people to just, you know, cut the depth on the squat or cut the depth on the bench press, even though they have that range available to them. That's not all we're saying. But if they are, if there are exercises that are just not well suited to your body with that range of motion, but might be well suited to your body with a shorter range of motion. For example, I have a lot of like taller individuals who maybe don't have the ability to touch their chest in a bench press, you know, for them, something like maybe a floor press or even like a, a pin press would be so much better if obviously if they want to bench press or whatever, you know? Um, so we might just do that. So they're still getting the stimulus that they want. They're still getting the, the kind of, you know, target exercise that they want, but we're not putting them at risk of, you know, cranky shoulders or different things that might occur if we're really just forcing that end range of motion that they just don't have. So anyway, that's, we don't need to go too much extra into that, but it does bring us to the next kind of topic before we can really get into the nuts and bolts of designing a program, right? So exercise selection, Gary, how do, how do we choose exercise? Cause this is something that I feel a lot of people put too much emphasis in. People think that there's some sort of like missing exercise, a special exercise that they should be doing that if they were just doing this exercise, it's going to completely change their, their, their life, their program. It's like, Oh, there's a, there's a secret sauce here. There's something that I should be doing. And then conversely, we also have people that are like exercise selection dogmatists in terms of they're like, Oh, you must squat bench and deadlift, or you're basically not training, you know? So how do we think about exercise selection? Yeah. I think we touched on some of this already in that, like, number one, what you want is that you're able to adequately target the muscles that you're trying to target. So you don't, you know, if you were finding that your shoulders are just getting sore from benching, you know, you're getting a lot of stress in your low back and hips when you're squatting as opposed to your quads, it might be that, you know, it might be that your technique just needs improvement, but it also might be that, you know, your body just isn't well structured for those exercises. And that doesn't mean you can't do them. It just means that there might be better options for the way that you're built. The classic example is, you know, we often get people to, you know, see what the stimulus is like on their quads in a hack squat or a leg press compared to their standard barbell squat. And, you know, depending on the way that you're built, you might find that one is better than the other. Um, similarly, of difference between a front squat and a back squat, these variations modify the muscles that are, are worked. So um, ultimately, that's what you want as, far as target number one. Can you adequately train the muscles that you're trying to train with this exercise? 
um, obviously you need to have access to the exercise and this is such an, an obvious point or seemingly obvious point but you know people do get quite I, th I think they worry about this more than they need to they think oh I, I watch all these bodybuilders and they have uh, these hack squat machines and pendulum squat machines and b squat machines and um, I feel like I'm you know leaving gains on the table if I don't have these and you know it is good to have a variety of machines that are accessible and good equipment of course but even with just a barbell you have so many options like if you're not getting a great quad stimulus for example from a barbell back squat you can try a barbell front squat you can try a goblet squat you can do a heel elevated squat there's lots of different variations even within the same framework for the exercise so number one you want to feel that the target muscles are being worked effectively in the absence of joint stress as i said and then also um, other muscles taking over as the primary movers there's no exercise that you need to do i think it's good to have a handful of maybe staples so for example over time you might try to get stronger on your overhead press and your bench or your incline bench or your squat your front squat etc that's the priority is that you've got some core exercises but not that they need to be particular ones it could be that you know you love progressing your hack squat or your leg press and you track your strength on that and that's like a big priority for you that's perfectly fine um and then along with that then what you want is that you can target muscles in different positions or different lengths so there are di different exercises will target muscles at different um, portions of their range of motion so for example when you do a squat that's most difficult on your quads in the bottom position and what that means is that your quads are more lengthened in that position. So it's like a, a kind of a loaded stretch on the quads, similar to a Romanian deadlift for the hamstrings. It's like a loaded stretch on the hamstrings. Um, then if you want to work that muscle in the shortened range, what you would do is you do a leg extension, for example. You're challenging that, challenge that muscle into its fully shortened position. Or for the hamstrings, you might do a lying leg curl. Again, challenge, challenging that muscle into the fully shortened position. And this isn't an area that's got an overwhelming amount of evidence, but it is clear that, you know, there are different adaptations within the muscle, um, sometimes referred to as regional hypertrophy, where um, the muscle will, you know, grow in a particular portion in response to uh, different, different exercises, number one, but that probably has something to do with the portion of the range of motion that's being targeted most. Um, so that's something that might be advantageous. And that's also true of people who are training for, you know, different sports. So if you're training for sports that require you to have your hamstrings fully lengthened or your hamstrings fully shortened, then you want to make sure that you're training that muscle in various points in its range. Yeah, hundred percent. And the way I often do this with clients or just talking to individuals about this stuff, you basically want to find exercises that you connect really well with. You know, you just go, okay, I can actually really feel this. I feel like it's really moving me towards my goals. You can also then choose exercises that are just set up for your goals. For example, you mentioned powerlifting earlier on, like you might not connect really well with a bench press. You know, there's no like, oh, I don't really feel my chest. I don't feel whatever, but it's required for your sport. So you're going to have to do that. Or there might be exercises that are, you know, really highly correlated with your sport. And obviously that's just a, you know, byproduct of, the way that movement works or whatever. So you could potentially just choose a different movement, but let's just use an exercise paradigm here. Like you might want to use that exercise because everyone else on your team or everyone else in your club or whatever also uses that exercise. So you want to be able to compare, like there's some sort of like, you know, 
whatever com competition competitiveness with that so it might not be perfect you might not get a good connection but there's some other goal there's some other reason that you have that in your program and that could also then layer on top of you just like or you really want to progress that exercise you know for example a lot of people will want to squat bench and deadlift because a lot of people do those exercises so they want to compare themselves to how other people are getting on you know even though they might not actually be built to do those exercises or those exercises might not be the best for their goals, you know? So we want to do stuff that are, or do exercises that are really effective for us. So generally, again, exercise is very intuitive. So if you really connect with an exercise, you really feel it working the target muscles. You really feel like you're getting a lot from that exercise. Cool. We'll keep that in the program. You might also have exercises that you're like, these, these are not, I don't really connect with them. I don't really, you know, or maybe you do, um, but we're basically going, oh, these exercises are stuff that are really important for your overall goal or your overall enjoyment of the program, because, you know, there's a competitive aspect or, you know, there's something that you enjoy doing about this exercise. Like again, squats are a classic one because a lot of people, they have a love hate relationship with squats. They're just like, oh, I really want to progress my squats, even though they're not necessarily built for squat. Like for example, Gary, both you and myself are not really built for squatting. Like I'm not really built for squatting because I've really long femurs and you're not really built for squatting because you're weak. Um, <laughs> you always feel it in your adductors and maybe even your glutes as well, rather than in your quads. Like it, the, the, for you, that's always the limiting factor. Um, so we both spent time building up our squats. Like I spent a lot of time building up my squat, got to a relatively respectable like back squat, but it's not something that actually really fits my overall goals in terms of like developing my legs or even like developing my, and we'll call it squatting potential, like that kind of movement pattern, because it's not really a perfect way to do that movement pattern. Like there's better ways for me to do that movement pattern. And um, so we spent a lot of time building those exercises up, but that was for enjoyment. It wasn't because we thought that those exercises were the perfect ones for our goals. Right. So what I'm trying to say with all of this is exercise selection is really important, but it's also not that important. You just have to have some sort of rationale for why you've chosen that exercise. Is it good for the goals that you're trying to achieve? Is it tickling some sort of, you know, goal over here that you're like, oh, I want to be able to compete in this, or I want to have some sort of like standardization with, you know, comparison with other individuals? Is it something that, you know, somewhat correlates with my sport, whatever. So there's a variety of reasons why we might do this, but generally what you're trying to do is pick exercises that fit really well for your structure that you connect really well with, that you think you can progress over time. And then maybe there's some other exercises in the program that don't really fit with that kind of paradigm, but you want to keep progressing them anyway, you know? And what I often say as well is, we want to get exercises that like we basically want to find exercises, a handful of exercises that really fit within either of those categories, ideally ones that you really connect with. And then after that, like there's no real need to be swapping and chopping and changing exercises all the time. Like if you find, oh, this exercise I really connect well with, like why are you swapping that out for something else that you just don't really connect well with? You want to literally milk that for all it's worth you know, and that could be fucking 20 years of training, you know, like if, for example, you might go, Oh, the hack squat, absolutely beautiful. I just connect well with it. It's something that I can feel myself like doing. It doesn't cause any like niggly injuries or niggly feelings in my hips or my knees or whatever. So you can see yourself progressing that for the next fucking 20 years, you know, 
why would you swap that out for something else just for arbitrary like oh well you know i've done this program for eight weeks or fucking 12 weeks 16 whatever arbitrary number of weeks you're going to choose why would you just swap it out then you know you want to keep that exercise in milk it for all it's worth boom we're done you know um so do you have anything else to say on exercise selection gary no sir right so we're in a position where we know our goals we have a good idea of we that we should be progressing our training over time in terms of you know lifting some more weight, you know, trying to progress our exercises in whatever way possible. You know, we're trying to use good technique. We've spent a little bit of time understanding anatomy. We've spent a little bit of time understanding how these exercises should be performed, etc. We've chosen some exercises that either fit our bodies really, really well, or they fit our goals. Again, could be strength, could be performance, whatever fuck, right? So you've done all that. Now, how do we go about actually designing the program, right? And the way we often start with that is starting with the reps because the goal dictates the reps. Like if you have a specific goal, whether it's strength, whether it's like hypertrophy, like muscle building, that's going to dictate what rep range we use because the rep ranges do have slightly different benefits and it is a continuum. It's not like these just shut off at a certain rep range and, you know, it's then start on a different rep range. It's not how it works, but we need to know how many reps we should be doing for a given exercise for a given goal. So what, what's the story of reps, Gary? Yeah, so generally, the lower the rep range that you're using, the more you're training maximal strength. So strength that is specific to low rep ranges or to the maximum amount of weight you can lift. And the higher the rep range, the more you're delving into the muscular endurance side of the spectrum. So for example, if you're training primarily in the one to five rep range, that's more specific for sports like powerlifting, where you're trying to maximize that maximal strength. Whereas if you're doing like that's a 20, 30, 40, that's, are you going to get strength benefits? Yes. But there's far more of a kind of a metabolic component there um, where you're just training, you know, muscular endurance and the, the ability to keep supplying that muscle with fuel and uh, buffer, you know, elements of fatigue that are accumulating and those types of things. The interesting thing is that when it comes to muscle building, which is what a lot of people are aiming at, doesn't seem to be too important what the rep range is. Like a lot of the time, what we'll say is maybe six to 15 is kind of a reasonable range, six to 20, six to 20 you might broaden it to. But ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter whether you're doing eight reps or 15 reps. It doesn't really seem to change uh, muscle hypertrophy outcomes too much. But most of the time, even if it's a muscle building program, what we'll include in a program is an element of each rep range. So for example, your first exercise might be you know, five to eight reps, and then your second might be 10 to 15, and then so on. So ultimately, you can have different rep ranges within the same program, and it doesn't mean that you just have to use uh, one specific range. Now, so, so on top of that, you could also do some sort of like block periodization, exactly, yeah. where you go, oh, this block, I'm going to do slightly lower rep ranges for the majority or some of my exercises and then the next block, you know, whatever, let's just say it's four or six, 12 weeks. doesn't really fucking matter. You're going to do a higher rep range or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and like, there's, that's just kind of a, some of it's personal preference and, and some of it is just good programming, but there are differences in terms of, you know, obviously how you put the overall program together. So whether you do all consistent rep ranges or you vary them within the workout or you vary them within the week, there are different ways to set that up. Um, and that's something we might touch on at the end. But from a rep's perspective, you don't need to get too obsessed about particular rep targets. What I often tell people is to pick a range. So rather than saying, I need to do five reps, it might be four to six, you know, 
if I don't, or if it's 12 reps, 10 to 15, basically you give yourself a range. And then that allows you to put into practice some of the other principles we'll talk about, like using RPE and reps and reserve um, within the context of that rep range. Yeah. So again, reps, we're choosing the rep range that makes more sense for our goals. If you're trying to build the most amount of muscle from a practical perspective, you know, in terms of what most people are probably going to do for most exercises, you're probably going to stay somewhere in that, you know, whatever, six to 15 rep range, because practically speaking, you don't want to be going into the gym and trying to hit a 50 rep PR on all these different exercises. Like it just becomes impractical. You're in the gym for fucking 10 hours after doing five sets, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then conversely, if we're doing a lot of low rep ranges, for example, three reps, you know, that's very neurologically, like, you know, your nervous system is very fatiguing overall to try to do multiple sets of that exercise at your fucking close to your three rep max, you know? So there's probably practically the six to kind of 15 rep range is probably where most people are going to fall. And that's not because that's the absolute optimal hypertrophy range or muscle building and strength range or anything like that. It's just practically speaking, that's just the easiest one to use because the other ones, whether you get lower rep ranges or higher rep ranges, there are trade-offs as a result of that, you know, which we'll touch on in a second, but there is also some sort of like, we'll call it optimal amount of overall volume that you need to do to elicit the response that you, you want to get. Um, and we'll measure volume by virtue of how many sets you're doing. Right. So let's assume right now in our heads, We've picked our exercises. We've kind of got them in some sort of exercise order that we want to do. We've prioritized exercises in that program, like that, that day's worth of a program being like, right, these are the exercises that are really important to me or that are really fit my goals or that are a bit more, you know, demanding. I'm going to do them first, you know, and then I'm going to order the other ones after that in whatever order makes sense for your goal. Then you've chosen your rep ranges. You go, okay, these are the kind of rep ranges that I want for these goals or for these exercises how close to failure do we need to be on these exercises, Gary? Because this is something that a lot of people kind of skim over. Like we'll just say, oh yeah, you need to be doing five reps. Does that mean that those five reps are complete failure? Like that last rep is just, you know, your eyeballs are about to fucking burst out of your, your head. Or does it mean that we're doing five reps and just because by virtue of doing five reps, we're going to get that target regardless of the weight on the bar, regardless of the proximity to failure. Because both of those thought processes, I've seen both of those at play where people just think like, oh, if it says five reps on the program, that means that that's a fucking gut busting five reps. And then I've also seen people, a lot of sports scientists as well, which is, you know, <laughs> unfortunate. Um, I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, well, five reps is strength. So just do five reps and have no consideration for like the actual weight on the bar you know so what's the story there like how close to failure do we need to be how much effort do we need to be putting into the the reps yeah so you need to be challenged and that's the main thing is that you need to be getting close to failure but not necessarily hitting failure and excuse me depending on the type of trainee that you are you know, the message might resonate in a different way because some people genuinely do need to be told that they just need to work harder and get closer to failure. And some people are hitting failure every single set and they're just, you know, generating excessive fatigue for the amount of uh, gains that they're going to get in that set. So you don't need to go to failure, but you do need to get close to it. And I think, you know, for most of your sets in the gym, you should be somewhere between maybe 
two to three, maybe one and three, maybe one to four reps from failure. Um, generally more reps from failure or reps in reserve. So for example, if you get to the end of a set um, with your 10 rep max and you stop at six, that would be four reps in reserve. So that's more appropriate for like heavier exercises like deadlift squats that are just a bit more fatiguing on the body as a whole. Um, more reps in reserve for those. And then, you know, less reps in reserve for, you know, your cable accessories and things like that. They're not that fatiguing on the body as a whole. So we can generally afford to go closer to failure. Um, and there's a key difference here between uh, training for strength or hypertrophy and, and testing your performance. And this is what people get confused about. They think that they need to go in and test their performance every single day in the gym. And that's just simply not the case. The reality is that what you need to do is train close enough to failure to continuously try to push on more adaptations. That doesn't mean you actually need to test yourself at 100%. You just need to get close to that point where you're working your hardest. So um, you don't need to go to failure. You need to get close to it. Uh, some people might need to work harder on getting close to it, and some people might need to back off. It just depends on the way that you've trained up to now. Additionally, there is a difference here between muscular failure and, and technical failure. So some people will fail a rep because, you know, their hands slipped out of position or they just lost their uh, groove, their technique was a bit off. Muscle fatigue obviously contributes to that, but ultimately what we want is that you, you stop the rep because your muscle was no longer able to contract and produce the required amount of force to move that weight. That's ultimately the type of failure we're talking about here. So for example, if, if someone can do 10 reps at 100 kilos on the deadlift and when they fail, it's because they drop the bar, let's say then that's not the type of failure that we're talking about. That's, that's just failure of your grip. And you're not really training the other muscles of that exercise to the same extent or to the same proximity to failure. So when it comes to putting this into practice, what I often suggest to people is, like I said in the last segment, to use a repetition range. So for example, if you've got a target of 10 to 12 reps, let's say, and you have a target of two reps in reserve, then what you could do is start with a given weight, let's say, that you think is appropriate for two reps in reserve. And maybe you've got 10 reps on that first set with two reps in reserve. The next set, maybe you're a bit more fatigued. And when you get to 10 reps, it's now one rep in reserve. So what you do is you drop back the weight and you just play around with that within that framework of 10 to 12 reps and two reps in reserve in the context of that program. So you don't need to go to failure. You need to get close to it. Some people need to improve that. Some people don't. Yeah, 100%. And just on that as well, the technical failure versus muscular failure, like this also does help you with exercise selection because if you get close to failure and the target muscle is not the one that's close to failure. For example, you might be doing squats and you always stop your set of squats because you're basically no longer doing a quality rep like this would be kind of we'll call it a technical failure in terms of you know you're not actually able to hold the position anymore you're shooting your hips back you're good morning in it there's obviously a component of muscular failure there because like why did your technique change like that some muscles were just getting fatigued etc and um, but ideally we're choosing exercises in general that allow the target muscle to be the one that is fatiguing first or is the limiting factor you know and you did mention this but i think it's really important to just reiterate that you know if you're doing squats for example and the muscle that is always failing is your low back 
and you're trying to train your quads, like your quads are probably not as close to failure as we want them to get an adequate stimulus, you know? So you might be better off choosing a different exercise or at least layering on a different exercise later in the program that actually challenges your quads closer to failure, you know? Um, so our ability to understand why failure occurred helps with our exercise selection, but also it helps with our overall program design in terms of how we're organizing the program based on what is actually failing. Like if you have something like, again, like a, I don't know, you're, I don't know, whatever, like some exercise, a certain muscle group is the one that fails all the time and you're not getting adequate stimulus for the actual target muscle. You might go, okay, well, I still like to do this exercise, but I still want to build up this target muscle. So you might have to bring in other exercises and as a result, change your overall program to accommodate that. You know, you can't just have this like static idea of like, Oh, squats target your quads. So this goes in my quad bucket when for you in reality, when you actually do that, it is absolutely not a quad challenge, <laughs> you know? So you can't just have these like arbitrary buckets and go, this is, this is a quad exercise. This is a, a hamstring exercise when it might not actually be for you, you know, or at least the way you perform that exercise. Right. And then what there is, there is a good kind of conceptual framework which it's not 100 accurate so like don't use this as a like scientific treatise um but this kind of concept of effective reps you know there's like a, a concept of like the five reps the last five reps before failure like you know it's like i have five reps in reserve four reps in reserve three reps in reserve two reps in reserve one rep in reserve like zero i couldn't do another rep like those kind of five reps are the most effective. They're the most stimulating for growth. They're the most stimulating for even for strength progressions and stuff like that. Um, it's not perfectly accurate to think that that's the be all and end all, but using that as a framework going, okay, it's the last five reps that are the most effective. So how do you actually maximize the amount of effective reps you get? And one way of thinking about that would be to just go to failure every single time. Like if you heard that and you go, oh, well, it's the last five reps, cool. I'm going to do them. You know, that's one way of thinking about that, but that might not actually be the most effective way to get the most amount of volume at effective reps. For example, you might do a set of, you know, whatever, let's just say five, right. And you go, okay, cool. I did five reps. It was complete failure. That muscle is now really, really fatigued. You know, maybe you're centrally, you're very fatigued. Like I say, it was a very demanding exercise, like deadlifts or squats or whatever, right? So you did that and now your subsequent sweat sets, you're not actually able to get that five reps. You might be able to get three reps and you're just like, oh, fucked. I can't even do another set, right? So in that overall framework, you did a five rep max and then you did three reps at your five rep max, right? So you got eight total effective reps, right? If you were to do three sets with, let's just say two reps in reserve, right? So you still get three effective reps, you know, you've effectively got nine effective reps versus the eight effective reps that you got previously with the, you know, five rep max and three reps to fucking failure, you know? So you might be further away from failure on any given set, but as a result, you're able to do slightly more sets, which over time, as up to more effective reps. So we have to really try to think of it in terms of, okay, it's not just a given set, it's the overall program, right? And this also then, not just in the overall program of what's on the program for a given day, it's also in terms of that week, that month. Because if you're going to absolute failure on everything, you know, you might be able to do that for the first week, 
second week there's a little bit more fatigue so you're not uh, you're not you're not able to push things as much as you wanted the third week you're just fucking beat up the fourth week you're just like you know actually i missed two sessions because i just i was just absolutely destroyed like the person that stays a little bit further away from failure they might not be getting as, as many effective reps as you in a given workout but over a given training block they might get more so we have to be thinking about this longer term and this is why you'll very often see people who say they're going to failure like they change out exercises very frequently they do a lot of different things they do a lot of like lower volume they do a lot of different exercises and that's just so they can accommodate the fact that they want to train to failure on a given exercise it doesn't mean that that's the most effective way to train like you'll often see these people that advocate like a really like let's go to failure like they'll be in the gym for like three hours you know because they have to take 10 minutes in between sets, you know? And like for most people, that's just not, not possible. And most people are like, yeah, I need to get my workout done in 40 minutes, <laughs> you know? Um, so we have to take all of that stuff into account. So for the vast majority of people, two to three reps in reserve is probably where you want to be for the vast majority of exercises. If it's more of an isolation exercise or a very controlled exercise, you maybe can go a little bit closer to failure. Um, but ideally for most of your training sessions, for most of your training career, you're going to be somewhere in that two to three reps in reserve. And the thing about that is you're going to need to learn what that actually feels like, what that actually looks like, because some people are just awful at actually understanding how many reps they have left. You know, some people are just like, oh yeah, that was definitely like three reps in reserve. And if you actually put a gun to their head or something, they're like, oh, I actually got another 20 reps. You know, it's like you were so far away from where you needed to be to actually get an effective stimulus, you know? So there is a component of learning here. Unfortunately, I can't teach you over a podcast, you know? Um, anything else to say on proximity to failure, Gary? No, sir. So we understand we've picked our exercises. We've kind of set up our program. We've picked good fucking reps for our given goal. We've then gone, okay, well, all of these rep ranges, I'm probably two to three rep two to three reps in reserve. What's next, Gary? Do we set a tempo for these exercises? Is this something that you would do or is this something that you think is kind of like falling by the wayside? Because it does go into the overall bucket of understanding in terms of an individual rep and an individual set. Yeah, so tempo is something that it's important, but it's not necessarily always something that needs to be prescribed as such. So when we talk about tempo, we're talking about the amount of time that you spend in each portion of a repetition. So for example... Are you taking three seconds to lower the weight? Are you pausing at the bottom? Are you pausing at the top? Um, and I will prescribe those types of things for clients. I'll say things like, for example, uh, I want you to pause for one second in the shortened position or the lengthened position or whatever it happens to be. And where this is most useful is for, you know, standardizing your technique and make sure that, making sure that you're controlling the weight. So some people don't need to be prescribed particular tempos. You just tell them, control the weight, lower it slowly and lift explosively on the way up that's perfectly fine for the vast majority of people and the vast majority of exercises. Okay. Um, earlier on when I'm, you know, coaching someone, a beginner, I might give them specific uh, tempos that I want them to hit to demonstrate to me that they can control the weight as prescribed basically. Um, but fundamentally all you're looking for is that you can maintain your technique um, excuse me, with control um, and that you're able, you're in control of the weight at each portion of the repetition. That's what's most important. And there can be, specific portions of the rep that you're trying to target, whether it's the lengthened or the shortened, but ultimately the rule of thumb, <coughs> excuse me, God, the rule of thumb, that alcohol, guy. <coughs> my God, 
the rule of thumb is that the eccentric should generally be slower than the concentric. So you want nice control eccentric, which is the lowering phase or the negative phase when the muscle is lengthening or stretching. And then you can have a more explosive concentric provided you're able to, you know, still maintain control and keep the stress in the target muscle without just, you know, flinging the weight around the place. So it should be stated that most people do the exact opposite of that. Yes. They just <laughs> let the weight completely fall down. Like there's no control on the way down. And then they try to catch it in the bottom position and, then slowly they lift it up because they've had no tension on the muscles, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like I would personally think of tempo uh, as a way for just like, it's kind of a proxy for technique and control. You know, you want to prescribe a tempo or use a tempo to make sure that you're standardizing the exercise, the technique, and that it shows that you're in control of that exercise. And it should be said that whether you choose to use a tempo or not, you are still doing some sort of tempo, you know, like you, there's no way to, say oh well i don't use tempos in my training like you're still using a tempo you're just not actively accounting for it you know and this unfortunately leads to a lot of people doing a set at a given tempo like you see their first set and it's like nice like two second eccentric slowly lowering the weight down they might even pause in that bottom position and then blast the weight up they're like yeah really like forceful contraction and then you see them on their third set and it's like they just drop the bar to their chest or whatever exercise it is and then they're like struggling like the, the first set and the last set look completely different in terms of the way they've actually performed that exercise. And that's probably not ideal because it, it kind of does change the overall tension that you're putting on uh, a given muscle, you know? And also it's not, you're basically changing the proximity to failure that we kind of talked about a second ago because you're doing something different than you were doing before, you know? Um, and we could really dive deep into this in terms of, talking about it overcoming inertia and accounting for inertia accounting for like momentum and all that kind of stuff we don't need to spend too much time on that um but it is a good idea in general to have an idea of what the tempo of that exercise should be for your goals for you know what you're trying to achieve um, and where that is in your overall program you know like it shouldn't just be a case of oh i'm just going to do this exercise and i'm just going to do it as fast as i can or i'm just going to try to do it as slow as i can like have an idea. Are you trying to lower the weight slowly and then pause in the bottom position, whatever it is, and then forcefully contract or slowly contract? Like you should have an idea. It doesn't need to be really like codified and gone like, oh, it needs to be a three, one, fucking two, one, whatever. It doesn't need to be something like that. I generally do that with my clients just yeah. to kind of standardize it. But as long as I see that client doing that exercise with control, with what we're trying to achieve with that exercise i don't really care if it's like oh well actually technically you only got two and a half seconds in that uh, lowering phase so we're not increasing the weight until you're able to perfectly control like i don't care like that's that's just irrelevant overall we want to make sure that the technique is standardized we want to make sure that control is standardized and that you're able to kind of like we often say like ease in and out at the end ranges of motion like you're not just blasting into that bottom like for squats are a classic example like someone will literally just basically be like a fucking wet noodle on the way down uh, like they're lowering phase hit that bottom range position and then just all of a sudden try to brace and try to push the weight up and it's like that's you're not in control you should be able to slowly ease into that bottom position and then ease out of that bottom position you should be in control if you're not able to be in control of that end range then we need to change something about that exercise we need to 
you know, maybe it's the way that exercise is with your body. Maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe, you know, we need to do something like maybe ban that exercise. It's just the way that exercise is. You're just always going to be in a weaker position, like for squats, for example, like that bottom position is just very challenging. And maybe you're just really strong in kind of mid range. So to get any kind of actual stimulus for that exercise for you, you're kind of just blasting through that bottom position because you're actually not strong enough to do it because you're so overly strong in the mid range. You know, there's, there's multiple factors that could be taken into account here, but either way, we generally use tempo as a proxy for technique and control and to be able to kind of standardize the technique of that exercise, you know? Absolutely. And then that brings us to a discussion of sets. And this actually, again, is, is quite a, it's a simple recommendation, but it's something that people get really caught up um, in worrying about. And, and like generally what we see is that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week is generally the framework that is going to be useful for most people that are trying to build muscle. Um, the more trained you are, the more sets you're going to need. Okay. So if you're a very advanced trainee, it goes back to what I said at the beginning and why I introduced those concepts that you've adapted to previous stressors that you've applied and you need to now continuously apply more stress in order to drive adaptation. And that doesn't mean that you increase sets every week or you increase sets every month or even that your sets this year need to be more than last year. But over time, there's going to be a general trend in terms of you requiring to do, you requiring more sets to continue driving that adaptation. And it also links in very much so with what we discussed previously, because if you are taking every set to failure, then you generally need less sets um, or you're going to be able to recover from less sets, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and if you're staying much further from failure, then yeah, you can do more sets, but you also just need more sets to get the same stimulus. So that's why we give a prescription that's based on both sets and the amount of effort that you're putting in. But for the most part, 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week is going to be appropriate. Um, and what I'll often do is suggest that if someone has muscle groups that are of particular focus for them, they might aim for 15 to 20, or if they're in the uh, more advanced stage of their training career, 20 to 25 um, and then keep those other muscle groups on the lower end that allows you to kind of put emphasis on the muscles that are more of a priority and a little bit less on those that are maybe better developed already so that's that's pretty much how i look at sets to be honest yeah i, I would be very similar and what i very often do is if i have an individual like starting training with me i'll basically just start them on like you know roughly 12 sets per muscle group per week you know very like spread out there's no like oh this exercise or this muscle group we're getting 20 sets like obviously if they have a specific goal they're like i really want to bring up this muscle group we might go higher from the off but in general we're probably going to do somewhere around that 10 12 14 kind of sets per week for per muscle group just as a broad spread and what i tell people is we want to maximize the amount of return on investment on doing these sets you know like i want you to milk everything from these sets like if you're doing 20 sets for every single muscle group out the gate, a lot of those sets are just not going to be high quality sets unless you've built up to that volume over time, you know, like they just aren't, you're just doing a lot of work. Like if you have to go into a training program and you're like, geez, I've 20 sets to do in this, this exercise, this muscle group, let's just say you're training muscle groups once per week, you know, like if you have to do 20 sets for this muscle group once per week, like, by the time you get to like, let's say 10 sets into that workout, like you're very fatigued, you know, you're in a position where you're like, oh, like I, I can't really push myself on these exercises you know, that are after those 10 sets. So you're getting less 
from them, right? And then we might change this by going, okay, well, we'll do split that program up into two days per week, you know? So we're like, all right, the frequency of the training stimulus is spread out a bit more, you know? And yeah, that helps as well, obviously, but we're still doing 20 sets per week, you know? They're still accumulating fatigue across the week into the next week, into the next week, et cetera, you know? So I would rather someone do a slightly lower volume approach be able to recover from it. Yeah, we still want to spread it out across the week, but I would rather you go into a gym and go, okay, I have six exercises for my chest, or not six exercises, six sets for my chest today. I want to get as much as possible from those six sets. You know, I'm going to really make sure I stimulate my chest, really focus on actually training my chest, not just going in and going, yeah, look, I can kind of just go through the motions with this because I know I have fucking 15 other sets to do today. So it doesn't really matter, you know? you're going in with the mindset of I have six sets. That's all I have to stimulate my chest, you know? And it's a bit, it's a bit easier to kind of get into the frame of mind of doing that rather than having a huge amount of volume because you end up doing a lot of junk volume that isn't actually adequately stimulating. And it's basically just more fatiguing, you know? And this generally, you know, the, the research would kind of suggest that per workout, it's kind of, once you get around that eight sets, per muscle group, assuming we're in this kind of two to three rep range or two to three reps in reserve, it's kind of at that eight sets that the return on investment starts like leveling off. Like, you know, you do one set, cool. You get some return on investment, two sets. It's all like linear. Like it goes up, up, up more and more returns, the more sets you do. And then once you get kind of eight, nine sets in a workout for a given muscle group, it kind of starts plateauing. So if you're doing 20 sets, like after that kind of 10th, 10th set, you're kind of just plateauing your results or plateauing the return on investment. And you're not actually able to adequately stimulate the muscle because you're already fatigued. So you're just making yourself more fatigued, you know? And again, as I said, one way to overcome that is to just spread it out throughout the week, which is, you know, that's a good training idea, but also we need to look at not just the week. We need to look at the month, the year, et cetera, you know? Um, so in general, if I was designing a program for you know someone that's a, newer to the gym or even an intermediate, I'm probably going to go, right, we're just going to do 12 sets per muscle group. Let's spread that out. You know, some muscle groups, we might do less, some we might do a little bit more again, depending on the goals. But what I generally say to people is there's two muscle groups max that we're focusing on at one time, you know, that you're like, oh, these are a priority, you know, because I know absolutely no someone will listen to this and go oh yeah well i actually want to prioritize growing my quads and my glutes and actually my my back as well and actually you know my chest uh yeah i actually like to prioritize as well my biceps and my triceps like you basically just said everything you know <laughs> so you go okay i want to make sure that everything is still growing but you know i want to prioritize growing my biceps and my shoulders you know like they're your priorities we might do 15 sets for those or 16 or maybe even up to 20 you know um but everything else is staying at that kind of, we'll say 10 to 14 sets. We're staying at the lower end the vast majority of the time. And we're trying to get the most, like putting our most effort into those rather than just going, oh, I have 20 sets. So I'm going to fuck around, you know? Check. And that brings us to a discussion of rest periods, which is the next uh, section. And again, like you can kind of see throughout this that, all of these things are linked and the recommendations for one varies depending on what we've said about the other things. So for example, what we typically say is, you know, between two to three minutes is a reasonable um, rest period, maybe in, maybe even one to three minutes for most people, most of the time. 
longer than three minutes if they're training for strength. So if you're doing very challenging sets on very challenging exercises like squats, deadlifts, etc., then taking more time to rest to make sure you're fully recovered to perform again might be good. But once three minutes is absolutely adequate most of the time. Uh, sometimes clients will say to me, oh, I feel like I'm ready after 30 seconds or 40 seconds to do the set again. And that for me is more of an indicator that maybe you're not putting in as much effort as you should be um, than some super fast recovery or something that you have. You know, Typically, if you're doing any exercise, especially with working multiple muscle groups and you feel good to go within 30 to 60 seconds, I definitely question the amount of effort that you're putting in. You should be short of breath. Your muscles should be tired. You should feel like you need to recuperate a bit before you get back in and perform again. So yeah, the only way I would ever see someone go like, oh, I feel great after 30 seconds, 40 seconds, I'm ready to go again. The only way I would see that as a possibility is if you are incredibly aerobically fit. Like if you're walking around with a resting heart rate in the thirties, I'd be like, you know, maybe you're actually able to clear any like buildup of metabolites or anything that might be giving you some signals of fatigue, hundred percent. Obviously that also accounts for something like, you know, enhanced bodybuilders, like they might be able to recover a little bit quicker because they have, you know, potentially higher glycogen stores, also like nitrogen stores within the muscle. They also have, you know, increases in red blood cells. So maybe they are able to clear metabolites quicker. Maybe they're able to oxygenate the muscle. There might be reasons for it, but for the vast majority of people, if someone's saying, yeah, I feel good to go after 30 seconds even if it's something like a, I don't know, a very small muscle group, like a lateral raise or something, you're just targeting like the, the medial delt. Like you're just like, I still would expect you to need like a minute if you're putting in an adequate effort into this, unless you're incredibly fit. And most people are not incredibly fit. Like I wouldn't be that fit. You know, if I was recovered after 30 seconds, like I'll, I consider myself quite fit. I'd relatively high VO2 max, relatively low resting heart rate. And if I put in an adequate effort into even a very like, small isolation exercise i still need that kind of minute to two minutes to recover to be able to put forth my best effort in the next set absolutely so one to three minutes kind of most of the time two to three minutes if you're working hard especially on compound exercises and three plus minutes if you're training more so for strength and on some of those kind of uh deadlift squat you know multi-muscle compound lifts if you will so yeah just also on that like obviously if an exercise gets you incredibly out of breath like say you're doing squats like your muscles might be ready to go again, but maybe cardiovascularly, you're not fit enough. And this is oftentimes you'll see this in powerlifters. Like you get a powerlifter to do like a, a set of eight or something. And they're literally sitting on the ground, fucking heaving, barely able to fucking breathe uh, for 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> so it's like there, there might be a cardiovascular component rather than a muscular component. There might obviously be like a systemic fatigue component as well, but we don't need to get into that. Yeah. And, and then finally, like short rest periods can be useful in some cases. For example, if you're using supersets or at the end of a workout, I'll often do it where maybe we're doing a lot of sets in succession. So let's say someone's stuck for time. Um, I have them doing a bicep curl and I might get them to do like, a, you know, four sets of 15 with just 30 seconds rest. So they're going to need to decrease the weight as they go through those. But ultimately what we're trying to do there is perform the next set in a pre-fatigued state ultimately. So you're not, you're not trying to recover fully because it's not the goal. You're just trying to maximize the stimulus in a very short period of time. And it's more of a kind of a, a metabolic stimulus, if you will, where you're going to feel the muscles burning um, and it's not really going to be a strength stimulus as such. So um, that's the, the case where I use shorter rest periods. 100%. Um, 
So that's resistance training, Gary. What about cardio? What if we want to layer, layer in some cardio? Because we're big advocates of cardiovascular training. It's not just all about the muscles and, you know, those kind of tissues that are adjacent to that or, you know, adjunct to that. Um, we also want to be cardiovascularly fit. We want the old ticker to be, uh, you know, performing well. So how do we layer on cardio training? Yeah, so I think cardio is incredibly important. And I think everyone should do some cardio, even if you're, you know, the most anti-cardio powerlifter. I think that, the evidence is very clear that for long-term health, uh, having a high VO2 max or aerobic capacity is incredibly important. So I do think it's something that everyone should try to, to work on. There's also the, I guess, the benefit that we mentioned previously, that if you are that powerlifter who's just limited by their shortness of breath, sometimes improving your cardiovascular fitness might actually improve your weight training indirectly because you're able to recover better within the session. Um, but ultimately what cardio starts with is your general life. So are you active in your daily life? Are you getting plenty of steps each day? You know, are you deliberately going out for a walk? Does your occupation involve you doing activity? And the less, the less you're saying yes to those questions, the more I would prioritize trying to make that a conscious effort. So, you know, you'll see a lot of people who track their steps all the time. Um, I don't worry about that with all of my clients. I do worry about it with some of my clients. If my client is, let's say, they're working on a factory floor. They're constantly walking throughout the day, carrying boxes, you know, restocking shelves, etc. And I know that on average, they get eight to 12,000 steps and that's just consistent because of their occupation. I don't need them to track that, okay? But if you're someone who is working a sedentary job, you know, like us, we work from a computer most of the time. Um, if you're that type of person, then tracking your steps and making a conscious effort to get out for walks and boost those steps is something that's going to be a decent kind of base for increasing your cardiovascular fitness and just generally improving health and increasing energy output. Obviously, that's a very, very low stimulus. And if you're anyway fit, walking is not going to increase your cardiovascular fitness. So most people do need to be pushing it on further. And this really starts for the most part with um, kind of aerobic exercise that's continuous or you know low to moderate intensity steady state people will say sometimes generally what this involves is being short of breath maybe around you know 60 to 70 percent of your maximum heart rate um consistently for 150 minutes at least per week is what you're looking at and that's a decent chunk but if you want to really start getting the benefits of of boosting your aerobic capacity you do want to be looking at kind of at least that quantity. You can obviously start smaller, you know, aiming for half an hour a week initially, progressing to an hour, progressing to an hour and a half, etc. But it is something that I do want people to prioritize across their week. And what I'll often do in terms of my prescription is if someone doesn't have weight training on a given day, I might say, right, this is an aerobic conditioning day. Do 30 minutes at 140 beats per minute if you're tracking your heart rate. That's not hard. It's very it's just a case of patience really for most people they need to just sit down on the bike or go get on the treadmill and just get the work done it's not very difficult for them physically because it's just kind of moderate intensity and the duration isn't that long um but it is something that does stand to you long term now a lot of people do prefer maybe higher intensity methods so you can kind of apply similar principles here but you generally need obviously less time if you're working in higher intensity so if you're, if you're looking at those recommendations, for example, for exercise for health, the recommendations would typically be 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week or 75 minutes of vigorous um, exercise. 
So something vigorous would be like, you know, you're doing assault bike intervals, you know, or you're working in a very high level of effort. The only problem with doing that type of training is that if you're doing this alongside your weight training, sometimes it can take away from your recovery. So you need to be smart with how you structure that. So for example, if you were doing uh, a training program that was, let's say, upper, lower, upper, lower throughout the week, then I might pair the interval work, if it's lower body dominant, at least with the upper day, for example, and then maybe have a rest day and then do the lower day. As a or conversely, if you're like, again, like four days per week, if you're like, oh, like this is going to be within the context of five days, you know, it's like you're doing Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, yeah. you might actually go, you know what? I need you to be more recovered for your upper body day because it's tomorrow. So you might do a lower body, like lower body cardiovascular training on the Monday because you know, you're like, oh, well, tomorrow I have to train my upper body. So I, the only reason I bring that up is you kind of just have to be a little bit smart with your overall week, not just going like, oh, well, I'll just do this, you know? And this is very important for, you know, exercise programming in general. And we should have probably mentioned it. There are exercises that cross over in terms of the, ex the muscles that are targeted. Like you might be doing something like, I don't know, squats, for example, and it's very fatiguing on your back, you know, very fatiguing on your spinal erectors, your back in general, because you have to hold the weight on your spine, you know? So if you go into the next day and your next day is supposed to be like a very back heavy day, like maybe on your, your lower body day, you've done something like a squats and then you've done something like RDLs, you know? And then the next day you're supposed to have a very back heavy day. Like you've already gone into that workout somewhat challenged and somewhat fatigued. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, that's fine but you do have to account for it like i wouldn't go in and go oh well tomorrow i'm going to be doing bent over rows because you're probably not going to get the most out of that exercise and it's the very same with cardio this is one of those things where people will say like oh you can't you know have cardio training and resistance training in a given program because there's too much crossover you know and this will be usually people saying that you know, oh, they'll do like high intensity interval sprints on like a, a spin bike, for example. So their legs are quite fatigued and then they try to do a lower body training session and their, their performance is shit because they're not recovered from that. So again, there's crossover and we have to be aware of that. Absolutely. Um, but the base guys is, is getting that steady state aerobic exercise, big returns there for people in terms of health and obviously aerobic performance. And of course, all of these recommendations differ than if you, you know, are doing sport. And that's just the topic for another conversation. This is a general introduction, how you do cardio, how you lift weights, etc. all varies depending on, you know, if you're training for a sport or not. And sports obviously do come into this discussion of how to train, of course. Um, but what, what all we'll say on this for the purpose of this podcast, at least, is that whatever sport you're doing, just have a rough idea of what types of training stimuli you're getting from that sport. So for example, if you're doing, let's say Gaelic football or soccer or another field sport, then your legs are going to be heavily worked a lot of the times. So you're doing a lot of sprinting, you're doing a lot of jumping, you know, there might be days where your hamstrings are sore, your quads are sore, your Achilles is at you, whatever it happens to be. You have to be a bit more dynamic with your training program then because if, you're, if you have a game, let's say, on a Sunday and you're supposed to be doing lower body on Monday and you're sore going into that lower body workout, it's not very wise to go in and try to hit personal best. It's not very wise to go in and try to you know, hit you know, more reps than you've ever done or more sets than you've ever done. You just need to be a bit more mindful with how you put these principles in place. And what I always say to people is 
to maintain flexibility. I always say this to my clients. You can move your training days around if you want. You can reduce the sets if you need to. You can stay further from failure if you need to. And what I always tell them is just, you know, let me know at the end of the week. Let me know the decision you made, why you made it. And that's ultimately what I want for people is that they're able to make those decisions. They're empowered to do that. Because the worst thing you can do is be so rigidly stuck to a program that you end up hurting yourself or that you just end up hating the program because you think training needs to be like that. It's the exact same as diet. If you're constantly think that you need to stick to this extremely rigid meal plan, you can never eat out, you can never eat things you enjoy, that's just not going to work long term. Exact same with training. You need to have some flexibility, some autonomy, and the capacity to move training days, move exercises, take sets out, etc. 100%. Um, so yeah, I don't really have anything else to say on this. Like, obviously, look, this is supposed to be a quick hitter podcast. Yeah. Still quite long, but there is a lot more nuance to this. But hopefully by now you should be able to go, okay, I think I have a good idea of why I should be thinking of organizing my training like this or <clears throat> how I should be looking at my program and interpreting that and then moving things around maybe as a result of that. Or you should be able to go away from this and go, I should be able to make the bones of a program. You know, maybe it's not perfect, but at least I have all the fundamental building blocks in place. You're not just, you know, picking things at your ass because this is what people will do. They'll literally just Google, oh, four-day training program and do the first one that they find, even though it's absolute crap, you know? You should be able to go, okay, I can look at this program and, oh, this is why this is crap. It doesn't follow these. Like I've seen people do stuff that like, or show me stuff that it's like, oh yeah, you've got 40 sets to do, for a given workout and it's like two muscle groups and they're doing that twice per week for those same two muscle groups. And it's like, you're literally doing like 40 sets per muscle group. And it's the same for their upper body or their lower body. And it's like, bro, this is way too much. Like you're going to be in the gym for three hours each of these days. Like I've seen some crazy stuff, you know? So hopefully you should be able to come away from this and go, yeah, I know how to interpret a program. I potentially know how to design my own program. And I understand the fundamentals of this. And, Hopefully, again, like if you're a coach listening to this, like ideally you've known this stuff, but maybe it's just a nice little refresher for you. If you want to send this to your clients as well, where you're like, oh, like I just need something that helps them going forward, by all means, send this. Um, and this is something that we wanted to do as well to be able to just give to our clients when they're kind of finishing up and go, yeah, you, you have an idea of what to do going forward. So Gary, do you have anything else to say? Do you, otherwise, do you want to wrap it up? Yeah, so guys, obviously, we do have a coaching service that we run. So if you're interested in more personalized advice and you want, you know, you're taking these principles on board, but you're thinking, you know what, I want someone to look after it. I want someone that can give me expert guidance. That's what our team does. We have coaching spaces available uh, for all of our coaches. And if you'd like to work with us, you can find information in the description box below. Sometimes people are concerned. They think, oh, am I am I advanced enough? Am I, you know, am I too much of a beginner? I play this sport. Is this not right? blah blah check all the testimonials on our site i always say that to people you'll probably find some of it similar to you and then you'll get an idea of the types of benefits that will be afforded to you by working with triage so check out that um obviously we have lots of other information that we put out for free subscribe to our newsletter follow us on social media um listen to the podcast regularly you know if you're just here you're, you've been sent this episode subscribe you know leave a rating and review we really do appreciate it. we'll do that you can also follow our individual coaches on social media. So if you follow Triage, you'll find the rest of our coaches who all put out independent information on their own pages as well. So that's worth doing. Um, other than that, I think that's everything. 
Fantastic. Anyway, I have nothing else to say, so I hope everyone enjoyed this, and we'll see you again next week.